Hello, my name's Frank and I'm the host of the UFO Thinker podcast. I'd always been mildly interested in UFOs, but like many people, the events of 2017 ignited a fire of curiosity for the UFO topic, which has been raging ever since. I wanted to start a podcast, but initially thought, well, I'm not an astrophysicist, I'm not a fighter pilot, and I've never even seen a UFO. I'm just a normal guy who's interested in this mystery. But that's when a light bulb went off. There are so many other people just like me who are fascinated with this stuff. So why not start a podcast to talk about it from the ordinary guy's perspective? All the BS stripped away, as a few people have said. And let's see if we can get to the truth in all of this. Thanks to everyone who's been on board with the journey so far. It's been amazing to see so many listeners tuning in. And if you're new here, welcome. You can now support the podcast on Patreon with tiers starting from £3 per month. The podcast will always be 100% free, but supporting the show in this way allows me to devote more time and make the show bigger and better. Higher tiers also include special benefits such as being able to suggest episode topics and get merchandise. And I really truly appreciate every listener whether you support on Patreon or not. So now with all of that said, let's get into today's episode. Okay, so it's my pleasure to welcome to the show today, Frank Milburn. How are we doing, Frank? Hey, Frank. <laughs> Thanks a lot, and uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, Frank meets Frank. <laughs> yeah, I knew you'd be all right with that name. Anybody with the name Frank, clearly a trustworthy dude, you know? Yeah, yeah. Cheers. Yeah, likewise. So, Frank, I know you as a, a former UK intelligence officer, a member of the Scientific Coalition for UAP Studies, and a name that comes up a lot on UFO Twitter. But for the listeners, would you be kind enough to give a little bit of background on yourself and what got you interested in the UFO topic? Sure, certainly. Um, first of all, a little bit of background about myself. Yeah, um, I've got a background in um, in military intelligence and counterintelligence. Um, I actually joined the Army Reserve as a paratrooper when I was 17. Um, and I was going to go parachute regiment like full time. Um, but then I got offered a, a place at a university. And uh, I, I got a place at the, uh, the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst. Um, so I was still thinking about going para. And then I got approached while I was at Sandhurst. Um, to basically asking if, I, if I'd be interested in doing um, military intelligence. And so it kind of all took off from there. And um, it was very interesting, all told. And um, when I left the military, I kind of carried on in the intelligence vein, just in the, the sort of the, the private world, the private security world, um, assisting kind of like large clients, uh, Financial Times, Stock Exchange, 100 clients, uh, Fortune 500 clients, basically doing exactly the same kind of stuff that I did in the military, uh, gathering intelligence on competitors, and also providing um, you know counterintelligence advice, um, providing intelligence on threats to, to to company operations, personnel, assets, locations, you know products, brands, whatever, and um, providing uh, you know kind of risk mitigation strategies, and um, I've done that uh, well for about 21 years now, um, including 
as a security manager at country and regional for oil and gas companies. Um, I've also worked for for mining company as well, extractive industries. So I've really kind of stayed in the kind of intelligence and risk game. In terms of um, what got me interested in UFOs, or actually I, sh- I should say really kind of like phenomena in general, I was kind of brought up with it. Um, my grandmother was what you might call gifted and my mother as well. Um, and I was brought up with, um, you know, kind of like uh, Eric von Daniken and Charles Berlitz and, and all those things, uh, Timothy Good. Um, in the military, I, uh, let's just say my interest was, was piqued by it um, considerably. But then it's one of those things, you know, you leave, um, you do other things and um, UFOs, you know, I kind of read books on phenomena and uh, ufology over the years but it wasn't something that I was like, you know, really kind of following avidly. I'd pick up a book maybe once a year on it. And it was really kind of tail end of um, 2016 when I started getting an interest in it again. And I joined the Richard Dolan member site. I'm no longer there, but I joined the Richard Dolan member site and I kind of got into it. And then I was just accumulating information as I do, because that's, <laughs> that's what I do. I accumulate information and try and make sense of it. And, um, then I decided that I wanted to start writing about it, and uh, and you know the rest is sort of history, as you say. Well, yes. Yeah, uh, speaking of uh, writing about it, you've actually uh, published uh, a couple of papers uh, on the topic: one on UAP technology and, and uh, one on uh, the UAP task force. Um, and what's the story behind all that, then? Yeah, I really I wanted to. Um, I wanted to, when, I, when, I, when I started writing, I wanted to uh, get my papers peer-reviewed and I'd already, uh, just to have the kind of credibility behind them, um, and I'd already written for the Bacon Sadat Center for Strategic Studies, which is a um, think tank of uh, Bar Ilan University in Israel. And I'd also previously written for um, the Institute for National Security Studies at Tel Aviv University. Um, back then, my focus was very much on kind of like Middle East, Iran, Hezbollah, um, you know, Iran, Iran's land bridge uh, to the Mediterranean. You know, I've been I've been working in Iraq, both with, uh, you know, the, the, the U.S. Uh, for the United States, um, for various um, organizations there and also in oil, oil and gas. So my focus is very much on Middle East. So I approached the Begin Sadat Center about doing a, a UAP paper and it took some convincing. But, um, you know, I couched it in strategic studies terms because it is a strategic studies, war studies think tank. But the reason I approached them was really because, like their sister um, think tank at uh, um, at the Institute for, Na- for Strategic Studies at, uh, at Tel Aviv University, it's basically a, a think tank that's chock full of um, you know Israeli intelligence types, retired generals, diplomats, um, people who work. Uh, there was one um, former head of the Israeli um, space agency there at the Begin Sadat Center as well who I spoke to briefly. So there was some serious, you know, military uh, intelligence and aerospace people at the think tank. So I thought that would be a a good place um, to get the papers published. And also as well, because, you know, it's a a globally ranked think tank that's, uh, you know, affiliated with uh, a major Israeli university uh, with a global ranking and with a uh, a prestigious international advisory board, um, you know, including people, you know, professors from John Hopkins in the US, from King's College in London. So that's really what, what I wanted to do rather than just start writing about UAP. I wanted to have that kind of that academic uh, background to it. Um, the two papers that I did, I did the, the Pentagon's UAP task force, um, as you talked about, um, and then the American development of UAP technology, a fait accompli. 
So what what they what I delved into were kind of like the strategic implications of UAP. Um, I looked at the um, the potential threats posed by traditional adversaries getting hold of the technology before you know the United States and its allies does, um, and also. I looked at uh, the potential threat from uh, intelligences behind UAP. And then I kind of went on to discuss uh, characteristics of, of UAP, um, weaponry, uh, defensive capabilities. And I looked at the post-quantum uh, revolution in military affairs, like how um, harnessing UAP technology would kind of change, um, you, know, how, you know, how we do warfare effectively and, and the advantages that would accrue to whoever manages, manages to harness that technology first. Um, because ultimately that's what it's about it's about power and, and about dominance um and um yeah that was where we we went with those perfect man thanks for that and um i've heard as well could be wrong on this but have you had some of your own personal experiences with ufos and if so would you be willing to go into any detail on that um with ufos no um i've had experiences i'd be I'm just not really ready to go on the record about it, but I'd be happy to chat with you off the record. Cool, cool, no problem. And um, yeah, I've actually kind of had some similar things myself, actually, and I'm just not really in a in, in at the right point where I want to actually go into it. But yeah, we'll, we'll definitely we'll definitely talk about that um, perhaps later. Um, so I, w- I was going to ask you: Is there any information that, that you have regarding the function or origins of the different types of ufos and uaps like for example like tic tacs and saucers and triangles etc well you know we're very much getting into you know outside the classic the, the classified world we're very much getting into the area of speculation here yeah um yeah now i'm pretty sure that uh people who worked in you know, ORSAP, uh, the Advanced Aerospace Weapon System Applications Program, and also ATIP, the Advanced Aerospace um, Threat Identification Program, people like Elizondo um, have a much better idea of the nature, uh, technology, and also uh, the function of various craft. So really, I could only theorize. Um, I mean, triangles, for example, uh, the large ones, if we're talking, it's you know you have to really understand who's behind the wheel, who's inside them, and what the intentions are to try and figure out what the function is, and also observations based on um, what the UAP are actually doing. Okay, so I mean my information is some UAP are ours, but um, you know not as advanced as, um, for example, um, you know true UAP with five observables. Okay, so. You know, you're really wildly speculating um, what they may be. If they're human ones, I would, uh, you know, I would speculate would be for, you know, for reconnaissance. We don't see much of them. Um, They'd want to basically control their signature management. They'd want to be operating where they couldn't be brought down by, you know, enemy uh, fighters or air defenses. Um, So I would think for the uh, human ones, like commonly referred to as things like TR-3B, those would be uh, sort of, you know, reconnaissance vehicles, advanced reconnaissance vehicles. Um, for operated by contractors, I'm told, but but um, but made available to um, you know the United States government. If we're talking other intelligences, then it's very much open to question. I'd say maybe the, the larger craft are there, uh, you know, maybe transport to carry uh, more equipment or more crew. Again, this is speculation. 
Um, what we can surmise from uh, UAP signature management, that's their, uh, you know, their accelerations and maneuverability, uh, maneuvering to avoid uh, at times contact with terrestrial aircraft and also um, their sort of uh, low observability. Um, we can surmise that sometimes they definitely don't want to be seen, um, that they are trying to, um, you know, hide their intentions. I actually have a, a section in my first paper, it's called Intent to Deceive, and it talks about, um, it talks about uh, the ability of UAP to kind of shapeshift, as it were. Now, the jury is still out on whether that shapeshifting is somehow um, mechanical in origin, some kind of mechanical function, i.e. Um, they physically change shape, or um, as Jack Sarfati, Dr. Jack Sarfati posits, um, that it is a, an effect of um, the gravity lensing. So effectively, it's kind of like a mirage that they're um, a mirage effect that they're shape shifting. But I think we can surmise from that uh, that um, at times, you know, the, the UAP do not want to be seen, and um, they will decide, well, rather the intelligence is behind them, whoever they are or whenever they are from, um, will decide when and where they want to be seen. Now, if you're talking about over nuclear installations, um, the ability to shut down nukes or the ability to initiate uh, nukes, as in uh, happened in the former Soviet Union, um, that's obviously a very advanced technology. If you were talking about that in in kind of uh, you know sort of a, a terrestrial terms, a terrestrial technology, you're really talking there um, sort of like some kind of electronic warfare weapon or uh, some kind of um, yeah, basically electronic warfare. Uh, the, uh, also, the ability to jam uh, aircraft systems, electrical systems, um, aircraft have uh, terrestrial aircraft have suffered um, near uh, well catastrophic engine failures um, when they've tried uh, fighters have tried to target UAP. Um, they've had uh, their weapon systems jammed. They've had you know, inability to launch missiles. Um, that, those types of things. So those would seem to be. Is that? Are those active defensive measures on the part of the UAP or is that a product of um, terrestrial aircraft being in proximity to some kind of UAP warp field? I think we can say the jury may be out in terms of um, when um, aircraft come into contact with UAP. Uh, but I think we can say when UAP are over nuclear installations and they start interfering with with uh, nuclear weapons. That is a very deliberate uh, use of their technology. So, are they carrying out uh, intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance, or um, are they testing capabilities um, to see um, you know what what uh, you know our defensive capabilities are or offensive capabilities are to see what our vulnerabilities are? Um, so, those could be reconnaissance craft. Um, over uh, you know nuclear installations, um, then you see like UAP over water. Okay, what are they doing? Um, are they, you know, if they're operating as a transmedium vehicle, are they doing something with the water? Are they going to a base? You know, there's a, just a lot of speculation that we can get into about it. Yeah, definitely. And, and like you say, I think there's still a lot of debate, isn't there, about, or like you say, mostly speculation anyway. But within that, there's there's kind of debate as to whether or not these these UAP are actually actively jamming radars and, and causing you know equipment to, to shut down or malfunction and things like that or whether it's just a byproduct of the actual technology involved in the propulsion system or, or whatever it may be but as you say when it comes to uh, a UAP appearing above a nuclear facility and actually directly affecting the equipment that would definitely seem to be you know on purpose wouldn't it 
Yeah, and I would just say, I mean, if we look at the both the Nimitz case um, and also let's look at the Nimitz case first. I mean, at the the F-18s reported jamming, right? They reported jamming that they actually, uh, you know, registered jamming um, against them, but um, their systems didn't shut down their their avionics, but basically the systems that fly the aircraft, that assist them to, the pilot to fly the aircraft, were not shut down. If we look at the Tehran case in 1976. Um, the pilot was looking to fire um, a heat-seeking missile at the UAP that he saw, uh, the second pilot um, that was launched to intercept. Um, and his weapons console went down, and also his communications went down, both his intercom with his backseater and also his communications with base, with his airbase. Um, so, I mean, that's pretty, that's very sophisticated. That to me would indicate something deliberate because it's shutting down the weapon systems, but without, and shutting down the communications, but without shutting down the avionics required to fly the aircraft. Mm. So that to me would seem to be deliberate and that would be, you know, highly sophisticated. You can selectively shut down some systems, but not others. Yeah, no, it's a good, it's a good point. And it always, like like a lot of other things within the UFO topic, it all comes down to, to data, doesn't it? Like if we had more data actually publicly available, it'd be a lot easier to actually be able to make, you know, decisions on, on what the intent might be and, and what the various uh, motivations for the different types of craft and, and all the rest of it. But I was going to ask you as well, do you know, with the triangles, do yeah. you think the triangle, it's, do you think the triangle itself is one actual craft? Or do you think there's a possibility? Like uh, I remember Kevin Day had said that the uh, they did witness the Tic Tac uh, object moving in a triangle formation, like a V formation. Yeah. How how likely do you think it is that there's a separate large triangle or boomerang type craft? Or do you think it could say, for example, the Phoenix Lights that may have actually been some kind of Tic Tac shape object, a, a bunch of them in a V formation? Or do you think there is? some actual proof that it is a, a, a triangle craft or a boomerang craft actually exists separately. Um, yeah. Well, f- first of all, let me talk about the Tic Tac um, in terms of what, what, it, what the craft might be. Um, I mean, Jack Sof- Dr. Jack Sofati, who figures quite prominently in both my papers, he surmises that it's kind of like some kind of, you know, advanced autonomous AI using kind of like some kind of post quantum computing system. Um, and that, and that it's from the future, basically. That that's, and I've heard that discussed between him and Eric Davis. Eric Davis didn't share that view, but uh, um, Dr. Jack Sarfati agrees very much with uh, you know Dr. Michael Masters that this may be using the the, the word may because they don't know uh, these may be um, you know autonomous kind of craft from the future um, with highly sophisticated AI. In terms of um, um, what is it aircraft? Uh, uh, sorry, is it UAP flying in fo- in a triangular formation or large triangles? I think if you look at David Marler's excellent work, um, you know, um, on flying triangles, where he he basically writes it like an intelligence estimate, and it's got a forward by uh, Colonel John Alexander, and also David Marler, he's he's a colleague at uh, at the Scientific Coalition for UAP Studies, as is uh, Dr. Michael Masters. So I've spoken to, I speak to both of them. Um, there are definitely like, you know, large triangles and smaller triangles. Um, so I think that triangles are definitely a thing. Um, as to flying in formation, yeah, that could definitely be a, a possibility as well. And some kind of triangular, uh, making it appear that it's, that it's a large triangle when, it, when in fact it consists of a number of, of smaller craft. 
But I think in terms of the the capabilities and the intent, you know, if you're going to try to figure out, you know, the intentions, you'd really have to have access to the kind of systems that, you know, like the U.S. military do, uh, that, you know, that the Russians do, that the, the Chinese do, that, you know, sophisticated military powers do like the U.K., and you'd have to determine, um, you know, the behavior of the craft using all the different sensors. Um, you know, there's there's somebody there in the Pentagon and the MOD for sure that uh, they 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 have some of this figured out, and they they have figured out you know what are the intentions, even if they don't maybe know exactly who's behind the wheel, they can surmise what maybe some of the intentions behind the craft because you know they've got access to a lot of data that we don't have and that we never will. Um, you know, in a nutshell. Yeah, yeah. So recently, I've been a bit obsessed with uh, crash retrievals, and I'd be very interested to hear any thoughts you have on Eric Davis, who you just mentioned a moment ago, and any sort of information or speculation you may have on what exactly Eric Davis has has seen um, or or worked on. Obviously, we know that, that Eric Davis has talked quite a lot about crash retrievals and, and things of that nature and been involved in loads of different areas uh, within within the Pentagon so far, different studies. So any thoughts on that? Well, yeah, um, I'm not sure if Eric Davis has actually worked on crash retrieval programs himself, but he certainly seems to know a lot about it. Um, and... I mean, the big interview that he gave was with Alejandro Rojas in April of 2020, and which featured quite prominently in my first paper, um, where he's talking extensively about crash retrievals um, and saying, you know, that there's a crash retrieval program. Um, my information is, I mean, speaking to my sources, that, yeah, there is a, a crash retrieval program um, and that uh, there is you know, basically two different types of program and uh, amongst others. And, you know, one is the actual, um, you know, trying to reverse engineer craft that have been recovered. And the other is, uh, well, sorry, trying to understand and, and, and get in working order the craft that have been recovered. And I'm told some are actually in working order. And the others are uh, to understand the technology enough to actually, you know, sort of build knockoffs. And that's where you get things like, you know, what is referred to as the TR3B, even though, um, I know that uh, David Marler doesn't like that term. So my sources, aside from Eric, you know, Eric Davis, are saying, yeah, there, there, there are, uh, there, you know, there has, there have been crash retrievals, um, and that the uh, contractors in the United States are in possession of both uh, working UAP that have been recovered, and also have reverse engineered craft that um, are better than anything in current inventories in the United States, in Russia and China and other countries, better than anything that anybody has on earth, um, that are, but uh, do not come um, do not come up to the standards of the true five observable UAP. And I'm told that these uh, reside within the hands of contractors. Um, they've been paid for out of the profits of contractors and they're made available to the US government as required. But it's a tenuous advantage because um, the... The recovered craft, um, the recovered craft, the the technology isn't fully understood. So it's not like they can start building, you know, deployable squadrons of, you know, five observable craft because the technology isn't fully understood. And I'm told that the, the United States is about, you know, 20 years away from that, which kind of chimes in with what Eric Davis says about, um, you know, with the defense intelligence reference documents and wanting to get the United States to a position 
uh, in terms of physics and engineering so that by uh, you know uh, 2050 um, they can approximate the you know reproduce the technology of the tic tacs effectively yeah so is there um any indications of of what type of craft have actually been created in terms of like are they tic tac type crafts or are they more of a larger craft you know the ones that have been created by these reverse engineering programs and and are they like transmedium or is it just that they are a more advanced aircraft that incorporates elements of some of that technology yeah i'm told that um that the the kind of like the knockoffs effectively the reverse engineered craft are for you know basically for surveillance they don't have full kind of like five observable but they've got like you know low observability speed um and uh you know uh, increase you know greatly increased uh, maneuverability um but i haven't been told exactly what they are i was told by one source you know that you know what everybody talks about the tr3b it's something similar to that and a kind of like a triangle triangular type craft okay um but uh you know, and we can go into this later. You know, I don't, I don't ask about classified information. I don't get told classified information. Everything that 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 I discuss, it's it's basically hypothesis and and um, you know informed theory, shall we say? Okay. So I, I don't ask people. I don't ask people uh, or not, uh, about classified matters. Nor do I expect kind of answers to to any questions. And I, I just don't make them. Hmm. So quickly going back to um, Eric Davis. Um, Joe Mergier, uh, UFO Joe, had mentioned recently that he'd heard from a source that Eric Davis handled the um, crash retrieval portfolio. Um, it's a bit unclear as to exactly what that means, but have, have you heard anything along those lines or any ideas what that could mean? Um, no, I haven't. And um, crash retrieval portfolio, well, there might be more than one. Well, portfolio... If that's the exact word used, that would that would um, that would indicate more than one crash retrieval, wouldn't it? If it's a portfolio, mm-hmm. but uh, I can't I can't yeah. speculate on that. He cert- I mean, look, Eric yes. Davis certainly knows about. He certainly seems to know about crash retrievals, and also he's gone silent on crash retrievals because I think he he was told by his employer to generally not talk about UAP issues anymore. I think after um, he made some public comments and uh, like with uh, Alejandro Rojas and then also with you know like the emails that were reproduced uh, you know kind of the exclusive emails that were that we reproduced in my first paper when he's talking about off-world vehicles um, and things like that so I think uh, he, you know he's gone very quiet on that so I just be very wary of anything unless it's coming from um, you know the, the, the source's mouth itself on that score yeah and it's it's speaking of of what Eric Davis actually knows. Chris Chris Mellon said in a CNN interview a while back, um, "quote I know Eric very well. I understand his arguments. I was present in his briefings on the Hill, and he tried to provide some leads for them to follow to enable them to potentially confirm this. It's an issue that should be taken seriously." Unquote. And my thinking here is that Eric Davis has more than likely located the programs. But even he has been able to actually unable to access them, you know, or, or at least, you know, at that point he'd been able to unaccess them, and he was trying to get some kind of support from certain people on the hill to get the authority to perhaps go and actually look at those programs. Do you do you have any thoughts on that? Any any clarifications you can provide? 
Um, I can't. That would be speculation on that. But it um, it follows the broad thrust of um, my argument in uh, American development of UAP to- technology, a fait accompli. Um, and if we actually go through that, uh, let's have a look. Where are we? I've actually got a quote um, from your paper um, where it says, uh, quote, Dr. Eric Davis once stated that during his time in ATIP, he located the reverse engineering programs holding the craft. And if they had been able to get access to the program, then they would have dramatically increased their understanding, unquote. So that seems to suggest as well that he's been frustrated by not being able to get full access and he's really been trying in any way he can to be able to do that. Would you say that's a fair okay. assessment? Yeah, and also there's the quote from um, Elizondo saying um, uh, basically getting Congress interested and that he believes that once Congress uh, believe, um, you know, understand more about UAP, then funding for a UAP program will be a, a fait accompli. That's why I, I termed the name of the paper, fait accompli. I used that term, uh, basically a done deal. Um, and that's my understanding. And I put this to Chris Mellon, but because you know we converse, um, but he hasn't answered. But I believe that you know this whole thing. It's partly about transparency, but the main thrust of it is you know they are both national security professionals, right? Both um, you know Mellon and and uh, and Elizondo, and they have you know engaged with uh, you know the public. They've engaged with Congress, and the reason is because this is my personal theory, as I set out in, the, in my second paper. It's because. Um, they believe that progress isn't being made fast enough, just like um, Harry Reid um, had, you know, um, grave misgivings about the, you know, the possibility of China and, and Russia being able to leapfrog ahead of the US if they get this technology first. Mellon and Elizondo, they believe that these programs have been hidden away for far too long. Okay, they haven't been making progress. They want to have a large, properly funded, um, you know, Manhattan Project style effort, like, you know, with billions and billions of dollars thrown at it. They can unite all the various, uh, like you call, you use the word portfolio. They can have the whole, the whole portfolio of crash retrievals, anti-gravity under one roof. Because as Eric Davis has repeatedly said, um, you know, the problem is if you have a bottleneck um, or you hit, um, you know, a roadblock in one of the programs on UAP, you can't just go and ask somebody in another program or somebody outside who may be an engineering specialist or a physics specialist. You can't just go and ask them for help because it's all compartmentalized. So I believe uh, Elizondo and Mellon, um, they want to have an overarching program so that if there's a bottleneck in, in, in one of the, 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 the unacknowledged special access programs, then they can then uh, receive kind of central direction. They can talk to other people and they can pass the bottleneck and they can make progress and get there before Russia and China. And if you read my second paper, that's pretty much what uh, Elizondo is saying. Yeah, yeah. And I definitely recommend everybody listening as well to go and check out Frank's uh, two papers. Uh, Very, very interesting. And um, I think you can find those fairly easily on Google just by typing Frank Milburn and uh, the two titles that we mentioned uh, earlier on. So um, moving on then, I know this is quite a nuanced thing. um, And it's a bit impossible to sort of like generalize really with this. But that said, how, how reliable do you think inside sources in general actually are? Like how long do you think a source could actually give information to, re- say, a researcher or a ufologist without being detected by counterintelligence or, or whoever? And, and once detected, do you think it's possible that that source could be turned or compromised and perhaps used to, to 
disseminate you know false information or disinformation um, amongst say the ufo community or even the wider public and if that does go on what extent do you think it goes on well yeah i mean there's a number of questions there. i mean yeah it's quite possible um and you know the ufo community you know as as it is it's been manipulated over the years for sure i think we've seen that both in terms of the press um, in terms of, you know, the denial and also the ridicule of the, the UAP, UAP topic. Um, but also, you know, the UFO community hasn't helped itself either because it's got its own kind of, it's more than its fair share of, of, of charlatans and, um, you know, people who make out kind of uh, uh, very, very outlandish claims, but without any proof to back them up, which is why, you know, I've said right from the fir- my first paper, it's like, um, if you can't produce a source, then it's like theory or supposition or hypothesis. Yeah. So, you know, I don't make any claims. Um, if I've got fact, then, you know, I, I will produce an email or he said this, or they said that, and I can prove it. Um, something that you can point to hard fact, if not, then it's, uh, it's a hypothesis. Okay. Now in terms of, uh, you know, can people be manipulated? Sure. If you're talking in terms of like, you know, the, the time traveler example, myself and Ross Coulthard, um, I'd say, first of all, if you were going to do, um, disinformation, and there's always that that risk. If you're going to do disinformation, probably the last two people you'd want to try it on with are a former counterintelligence officer and a, an investigative journalist of his stature, right? So that would be my first point there, okay? Um, secondly, in terms of how I go about things with my sources, you know, it's not just like I get some kind of phone call in the middle of the night or like an anonymous email. The people that I talk to um, are known to other people that I already have an established relationship with and, and are known and trusted and I, who I converse with regularly and they put me onto people. So if somebody approaches me, you know, I can check their bona fides, right? Who they are and who they work for. That's not a problem. Um, also as well, um, because of my background, um, you know, I'm kind of, I'd say I'm accorded, uh, what would you call it? Sort of professional courtesy. Um, you know, I am, I, worked in that world and i'm treated by those those types of people uh, not the scientists but you know the spooks i'm treated as someone who has worked in that world and you know i, I know what i'm about so you know i'd be I, I i twig very very quickly if someone were trying to pull the wool over my eyes i mean i used to do counterintelligence so and you know i do it in in the civilian world um for clients if somebody wants to um do business with one of my clients, I will do, uh, you know, the full background check, full vetting. If somebody wants to borrow like large amounts of money or invest large amounts of money, you know, I'll investigate the company structures. Do they have hidden liabilities? Do they have nefarious relationships, for example, with organized crime groups or terrorism? Is there anything that could be, you know, blowback in terms of reputational risk to my clients, right? You know, they pay me to do a thorough investigation and to be completely suspicious of people that want to do business with them also background checks for people that they want to bring into their companies and to promote to the highest levels yeah so you know it's not my first rodeo and um the people that i speak to as well it's not like you know they're passing me classified information there isn't an opportunity there for you know uh if we're talking american counterintelligence to to start providing disinfo because um you know, they're not breaking the law. They're not talking about classified things and they're not talking about things that are covered by uh, NDAs. And, you know, as I stated previously, uh, I take, you know, I take the security of Great Britain very seriously. You know, I took an oath and I also take, you know, the security of our allies very seriously. Um, And because I'm responsible in the way that I represent what I'm told 
by those sources, they continue to talk to me. And, you know, you develop a relationship with people over time. You know, it's all about time, something that you learn in the Middle East. You know, when you sit down and drink tea with people and have meals with people sat on the floor, you know, it's about it's about spending time with people. And over time, you develop, you know, a, a close relationship. And, you know, a lot of the, uh, you know, quite a lot of time, you know, I spend not just talking about UAP. We talk about, you know, family matters. We talk about, you know, sort of veterans affairs, depending on who you're talking to. Um, I've also, you know. I've been asked, uh, you know, to at times to assist with, uh, you know, members of the intelligence community, for example, um, to lend my expertise on evacuation planning when um, the airlift was uh, was going on out of uh, Kabul airport. Okay, so I was brought in with an American team, former and serving uh, special operations and, uh, you know, intelligence types um, to provide some kind of assistance about how to get people out of Afghanistan. So I played a very small part, but I did that for a, for a couple of weeks. So, you know, you have a relationship that goes beyond UAP is what I'm saying. So, um, you know, you, you develop a certain level of trust as well. If somebody, uh, you know, I've, I've served a lot with Americans over the years. You know, people can, can tell who you are and what you're about, you know, by what you've done in the past effectively. And, 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 and it works both ways uh, but for them and, and for me as well. That's the best way that I can explain it. And also yeah, as well, no, you know, sorry, the most... So I was going to say the most important thing as well, uh, you know, you don't just take what people say for granted while you're getting to know people, you know, you investigate them, their addresses, where they live, um, you know, papers that they may have written if they're, you know, in the science world, you know, you vet your source pretty considerably. And, um, you know, you go and talk to um, people that you know and trust already, like, you know, who is this person? You know, are they legit? Oh, yeah, I know them. Or I know someone who knows them. Yeah, they're legit. You can talk to them. You know, it works like that. Yeah, no, definitely. It, make, it makes a lot of sense. And I think, um, it's, it's, I mean, especially for you, it's perhaps a little bit different because you've actually got a background in counterintelligence. You know, there may or may not be people that you've actually met during the course of your career who can corroborate things and whatnot. But the, the reason I ask is more like widely, perhaps within the, the UFO topic, there's there's a lot of talk about, you know, sources and every kind of any, anybody who classes himself as a researcher kind of has sources, you know, on the inside and that kind of thing. And, and I, I just wonder, um, and obviously you'll be able to kind of help me with this, I think, uh, being from that counterintelligence background, if a researcher comes out and says, um, okay, I've heard from an inside source that um, there's a crash retrieval program and, you know, blah, 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 aircraft is, is, is being made in that program. Surely that'd be like... Um, the way I've put it in the past is like a red flag to a bull. You know, they would there'd be people monitoring what researchers are saying, and as soon as they find out that somebody has a source, they'd be all over it trying to find out who that source was. Is is that the way it works, or what? What do you think? Um, yeah, I mean, if you're talking about you know illegal acts, I mean, you know, look, there's illegal acts. There's um, you know pa pa passing of. Um, information that's been gained illegally right so you know if you're working in the intelligence community and you pass on classified information yeah to somebody who's not authorized to receive it then you're breaking the law yeah and you've you know you've broken your oath that, that works in the uk that works in the us but if you're talking to somebody off the record um and they're giving you um you know basically the benefit of um you know informed opinion hypothesis and theory things that are not classified and things that do not fall under any NDA that they may have signed or, or may not have signed, as the case may be, 
um, then you know that's not breaking the law. Um, now, I kind of know that I'm on people's radar because of uh, people that I speak to. I mean, that's just an, an inevitable consequence of, of what I do. <clears throat> and I assume that and I, I, don't, I don't have a problem with it. OK, so and people that I talk to as well, sometimes they say, look, you know, that, uh, you know, communications will be monitored at times. So, you know, I don't have a problem with that. Um, I, I, you know, it's not like, uh, for example, Julian Assange um, taking, getting illegally, getting a whole swathe uh of documents that have been passed to him by someone who had uh, need to know and need to hold, i.e. Manning, and then just releasing those into a big dump onto the web, right? It's, it's a completely different thing. That was classified information that was obtained illegally. Um, what I'm, I'm not breaking any laws and neither of the people that I'm talking to. I'm not engaged in espionage. As I said, I don't ask them about classified matters. Sometimes I might ask them a question and I'll just go, look, you know, I can't, I can't reply to that because then that would give you know, that would give you information about something else that I can't talk about, right? So that's the way it works. Yeah, I guess it's a bit of a, um, there's a line to to not cross, isn't there, with those kind of things, like, say, the way Lou Elizondo uh, handles himself when he does interviews. He knows that he can walk all the way up to the line, but you can't cross it. So is it a similar kind of thing? Say, if somebody has a, a source who's still currently working within a certain uh, department of, of the government somewhere in, in the States, for example, um, that person, as long as they're not actually divulging anything classified they're not actually doing anything that's like prosecutable um, and that's perfectly above board is it um yeah i mean it's a kind of fine line and i think um you know you're mentioning like you know elizondo eric davis um you know they walked a very fine line but even when you're walking a fine line for example eric davis's employer um told him you know basically not to talk anymore about it and not to talk about uap issues right so even if you walk a fine line, sometimes, you know, people will not want you to talk about it. So it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a judgment call. Um, but the way I've handled things, I mean, I'm told by the sources that I speak to, you know, they listen to my podcast as well. They tell me stuff and I, I might disseminate some of it in a podcast um, or in written form. And they say to me, no, thank you. Thank you for protecting our anonymity. And also, you know, thank you for the way that you've, you know, presented the information. And, you know, I've always been clear from the start, I'm not um presenting anything as fact without hard evidence and i actually said you know in my first paper when i was talking about um you know the uh the wilson docs and i said um yeah i said a very simple system is available to great sources and information and ufology would benefit greatly from its application source reliability is graded from a completely reliable to f cannot be judged information is graded from one confirmed by other sources to five cannot be judged if a source chooses to remain anonymous, then neither the source nor the information he or she provides can be assessed in public. So any claim based on either remains theory or supposition, stating that one knows someone who says X, Y, Z is not proof. So, you know, I've been upfront with that from the start. And I've always been one, you know, to, to kind of point out people saying, oh, well, I know I'm right and I know this and I know that. It's like, well, prove it, you know. Yeah, I mean that 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 scale is is a a, a good way of putting it. Um, and like I said at the beginning, there it, it is a very nuanced thing, isn't it? Because at the end of the day, the only person who really knows how trustworthy that source is is the person who is in contact with the source, and then obviously nobody else gets to know that. So 
it's a really tricky area and like I say um thanks for uh, for going into that as as much as you can there because something that I've been really wrestling with recently the the whole sources um thing so um let's just jump straight into time travel and uh, future human time travel sure. theory um be- because obviously that's a lot about you know where the sources thing that we've just been talking about comes from because that is basically coming from um a relatively small number of, of inside sources at the moment obviously it is also um a lot of people like michael p masters that you mentioned earlier has been talking about this for quite some time um way before the kind of current buzz which is going around the ufo uh, community um so is there any clarity at all you can provide on, on that theory in general and where this info is coming from? Although I do understand, like we've just discussed, that you won't be able to reveal exactly where your sources are. Yeah, I mean, I've been, um, I've had this kind of uh, hypothesis kind of like laid out for me by um, um, you know, people with intelligence backgrounds and also scientific backgrounds. Um people whose backgrounds, you know, I've verified and especially on the scientific side, I mean, people who are, you know, absolutely impeachable, like, you know, their reputations and their, you know, their you know, intellectual and, um, you know, capacity and, you know, their educational background, um, you know, people who know this subject, you know, intimately. Um, and, you know, I, I it, it, like I said, it's a process of, it takes time and, People tell you things and then you verify that claim. And then as time goes on, you verify another claim and then, you know, you, you put the pieces together, but you're constantly checking and verifying. Um, so I, as I've said before, um, I'm convinced that they believe uh, what they're saying. Um, and my understanding is that, you know, they're, they're saying that it could be an explanation for some UAP, but not for all UAP. Um, so, you know, there's a thing, you know, people in the ufo community and that's why i've never called myself a ufologist i'm a i'm a like in a national security strategic analyst who's got an interest in phenomena uh, because ufology has got way too much baggage you throw something like um you know time travel hypothesis out there people are so wedded to for example the extraterrestrial hypothesis they have a kind of cognitive dissonance no nothing else can be possible it's like well sorry but <laughs> i can't really explain but if you knew the people that i that, that, that i that i were talking to then you know that wouldn't be an issue because quite clearly um, they know a lot more than you do, and they actually work in that area, so they actually do know what they're talking about. Um, so it's a difficult one, um, but you know I don't really pay a lot of attention to what goes on on um, you know in terms of you know comments by people who you know maybe aren't that informed. I mean I don't claim to have all the answers. I'm not a scientist. Um, I'm not going to go and try and explain to people about you know time parad grandfather you know grandfather paradox and time loops and all the rest of it. I leave that to scientists like the people I talk to or Jack Sarfati or to um, you know Michael Masters to talk about. I try and stay within my lane of uh, of competence in terms of um, you know trying to know what I what I'm talking about basically. If we can ever <laughs> if we can ever manage to do that. Um, so I try and stay in my lane and I try and look at the implications of it in terms of, you know, a national security perspective and, you know, what it actually means for, you know, humans in our time. But um, I'm convinced the people I talk to believe that, you know, this is a valid uh, hypothesis and they believe that, you know, there are time travelers living amongst us. Uh, time travel to the past is possible. Time travel to the future is not. Um, and that, you know, the Mandela effect is real. And, 
one interesting point that I wanted to bring up, uh, listening to one of your past po podcasts, you were saying, you know, about the Mandela effect, and you were saying, well, you know, you could really screw things up if you start messing around with the timeline, right? And this was a point that mm. I put to my sources, and they turned around to me and they said, well, if you were facing cataclysm or you just lived through a cataclysm and you wanted to stop it, or if you were, um, you know, like a, for example, let's, you know, a gray far in the future and you're being severely graded uh, and, you know, you want to try and change things so that your species can survive, um, you know, time travel to the past um, to start changing timelines is like the last ditch effort of a civilization that's in serious trouble and it's got nothing left to lose. Yeah, yeah. You know, well, if, if you're talking, it's a, it's a good you know, point. being in existence you know, or being out of existence, if you're if if you're talking about preventing a cataclysm and uh, you know preventing you know your the death of billions, or if you're from the other side talking about making sure a cataclysm happens to make sure that you survive, you're going to do anything to make that sure that happens for your survival. Yeah. So it's the it's the, it, it's the very last thing that you would do. You'd have to be really really desperate to do it. Yeah, which also think, which also leads you. Sorry, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. I was just going to say, and you know that would mean as well. You know, if you've got nothing left to lose because it's literally your existence on the line, that means that you're going to be utterly ruthless in uh, in prosecuting the changes that you want to happen or don't want to happen. That's the the logical corollary of that one. Yeah, and I, th I think it's a case of you know, there's the possibility that it could be that all of the above thing there's nothing to say that if the time travel thing means that the extraterrestrial things out the window because i suppose there is always the possibility that there could be humans time traveling back you know from the future to avert a cataclysm there could also be extraterrestrial vehicles actually arriving here and then on top of that there could actually be extraterrestrial vehicles arriving here which themselves have traveled back from uh, sometime in the future so it's it's uh it's impossible to actually say obviously all of this is basically speculation but there's a lot of different elements to it Um one thing i found that you probably yeah. heard if you if you were saying you you listened to those uh, episodes that i did with um uh, i reached out to michael p masters and he was actually mentioning um that he would he would uh put a, a rough date of around about eight to twelve thousand years um, I think he said eight to 12,000 years at least. So it could be much further in the future than that. But I was wondering if you heard any indications of um, when the the grey type future humans could actually exist in the future. Any ideas on what rough date that could be? I haven't, no. But, um, you know, that would sound kind of logical that it would be kind of far in the future because they've got to go through some kind of, um, you know, evolutionary change, haven't they? And that's not going to happen like in the course of a decade or two decades or 10 decades, right? Evolutionary change is, is going to take much longer. Um, I want to say, I mean, there's a very good, you know, you're, you're, you made a very good point about, you know, why does it have to be one thing? I mean, why do we have to pigeonhole it and say, oh, it's the ETH or it's the future human hypothesis? Uh, Colonel John Alexander, who, who you know, I, I've spoken to extensively, um, in my first paper, a great quote from him. he said to me, your question about spatial, temporal or dimensional in origin, the answer is both yes and I don't know. All of the above are possible. Yeah, the, the all of the, the all of the above thing uh, does freak me out, to be honest, but it's uh, it's you've got to consider it. It's like Lou Elizondo always says, everything's got to be on the table until it's not on the table anymore. 
And uh, speaking of um, you know that that particular concept of the future humans thing, have you have you had any um, indications as to what exactly the the, the cataclysm which is being theorised um, you know could actually be, and and rough times and you know of when that might happen? Um, within the next decade, I'm told. Um, one source who's uh you know sort of very science minded they talk about like nibiru and uh you know this cataclysm that happens once every 12,800 years you know the last time being the you know noah's ark scenario um and they basically said like you know we're we're in for we're in for another one very soon now in terms of how it's caused um that's kind of like very open to question is it a natural cataclysm? Is it like a nuclear disaster or ecological disaster? Is it like a, an, you know, a, a, a meteorite impact um, on a kind of like a dinosaur, you know, kind of changing Earth event scale? Or the other thing that's been posited is um, that maybe these temporal agents, you know, actually interfere with the nukes themselves. Um, either the, another, a number of scenarios are posited to me. Uh, one would be, um, if you were having say, uh, just quickly, I'll talk about the, the, the Nibiru, uh, scenario. That's basically a planet that, that, that supposedly, you know, comes through the solar system once every 12,800 years. And it has, uh, a big asteroid cloud that comes with it. So this one source was saying to me, if you were having, um, you know, the possibility of massive impacts from basically rocks flying through space, um, you'd want to get your nukes and you'd want to start shooting them out to start taking these things down, right? Or to, uh, to deviate their course. So you might have temporal actors uh, would um, uh, try to affect um, nuclear weapons um, so that you could not shoot down certain asteroids so that they would be hastening an event, making sure that there was an asteroid impact or causing some kind of nuclear accident that contributes to the problem. So you get hit with asteroids and you get hit with a nuclear accident. Um, they also talked about the possibility. And, and look, this sounds like really, really out there, but these are just, you know, uh, ideas that, that we that, that were put out there. Also as well, you might have kind of like, um, you know, uh, proxies used by temporal agents, kind of like religious groups. They believe, okay, the... Um, you know, everybody in the world knows that there's a huge asteroid cloud coming um, that we're going to get hit. So you might have one group saying, okay, so it's the end of the world. Um, this is God's will. It's meant to happen. You might have them trying to sabotage uh, nukes, trying to sabotage the effect to uh, protect the earth from asteroids. Um, you've got possibilities for terrorism as well. And they also posited another thing. They said, if you had um, a major threat from asteroids, they said just the fact or the, that you would have to be firing lots of nukes out into space, um, you're then um, faced with the possibility of, you know, you're using nukes. So there's a, a, there's a probability of accidents. Um, you could, on the launch pad, you could have uh, in the silos, you could have, um, you know, anomalous weather events, hurricanes, or whatever that cause accidents, those types of things. Um, all, all these uh, were put out there as hypothesis. Again, I've got no proof for this, and it all sounds pretty out there. But you know, these are the kind of um, fascinating conversations that I've been having. Definitely fascinating conversations. And um, I just made a little note there as well. The 
the 12,800 years thing almost exactly coincides with the, uh, you know, the, I'm sure you're familiar with Graham Hancock and his, his uh, uh, young, younger Dryas, the, the, the impact hypothesis. That's almost exactly uh, that, that particular time frame, isn't it? And we kind of, if that, if that t- does turn out to be the case, we're basically due for another one very, very soon. Yeah, yeah, we're kind of screwed. <laughs> it's true. Oh dear. Well, and, and another thing that, that occurred to me was the the thing about the um, the nuclear connection. There's always the possibility that that could explain why some of these UAP actually switch off nukes, and some of them actually switch on nukes as well. Um, because perhaps there's one faction that are actually planning on using those nukes to defend us. And if they can control those nukes and do it at a certain point, maybe they, they could help in that regard. And possibly even the other faction are working in the opposite way. Have, have you heard anything to do with that? One faction or the other is more likely to interfere with the nuclear weapons? or? Yeah, I mean, I've heard that the Graves would be the ones more likely to interfere with nukes to actually, you know, initiate them or cause an accident to, you know, either to affect, you know, the ability of humans on Earth to defend themselves against asteroid clouds or, um, you know, to cause a, you know, a kind of cataclysmic event, you know, centered around nukes. But, you know, whether you believe that the UAP, you know, people automatically jump to the conclusion, oh, you know, they're here to help. They're shutting down our nukes because, you know, we're irresponsible. Um, and, you know, they're here to help. I don't know. That's a bit of a jump for me. Um, I prefer to work on, uh, you know, the worst case scenario and anything from there is a bonus, right? So if they turned out to be friendly, great. But to automatically assume that they've got our best interests at heart. I mean, you know, even even if you take the most kind of, you know, the, the most um, sort of liberal view of that, and I mean liberal with a small L, um, and the most optimistic view, you're still faced with, uh, an intelligence that's operating a technology far, far advanced in our own. And that's indicative of a very unequal relationship between, you know, humans and the intelligences behind UAP who are, you know, initiating or shutting down these nukes. Anyway, you cut it, the relationship is highly unequal. Yeah. Have you considered the possibility as well that, um, I know you're saying there that you tend to assume that the, there is less of a kind of friendly approach from, from these, these others. Um, but have you considered the, uh, the possibility of, you know, the gifting thing where people have mentioned that, um, some of these, you know, crashes quote unquote, um, are actually designed as, as gifting us this technology. Um, even I think Ross Coltart mentioned in his book that he's heard that there was actually a, a, a UFO craft found intact um, with the lights on, uh, as he put it. Uh, is, is there the possibility that they could that, that could actually be taking place in order to give us this technology to avert a cataclysm? Yeah, I mean, I have heard that and it could be. The answer is, you know, I don't know. Um, but also I would have to ask this question as well. If you were, okay, so if you were future human, and I'm just go completely hypothetical here. So if you were future human and you wanted to make sure that there wasn't a cataclysm, that, that, that there, there was not to be a cataclysm. Yeah. You might want to see some kind of technology to humans in this timeline, in this time, so that they could have technology to help them avert the cat- catastrophe, because then you're saving yourself in the future. Yeah. But hmm. If you're talking uh, extraterrestrial hypothesis, then I would have to ask myself, well, why would an intelligence from outside the planet want to be uh, helping humans to get up to their level when you can see how screwed up human beings really are? 
and you know how we invest all our greatest minds and you know vast amounts of money i mean we spend far more on defense right than healthcare right in the world yeah <laughs> we spend far more on defense yeah. so why would you want to ad help advance a species that exterminates itself uh, other members of its species uh, does the most unspeakable things to other human beings and also does the most unspeakable things to um, other sentient beings on the planet and also as well you know messing up the planet ecologically so um, that's the question that i would ask it would make sense in terms mm. of if you had friendly future humans yeah they might want to um you know help humans develop the technology in this time to prevent uh, an apocalypse but if it's eth i'd have to ask well why would you want to help humans advance themselves when humans clearly present a threat to themselves and everything around them yeah so um moving on then uh, a little bit closer to home this one uh the the uk has been uh, notoriously and uh, suspiciously silent on the ufo issue and um, probably one of arguably one of the most secretive countries um, on that particular topic. Um, do you think there is or was a UK version of ATIP or RSAP? And uh, do you know of any high-level scientists engaged in that field, perhaps like a UK equivalent to Eric Davis? Okay, well, first part of the question, I think you've got to kind of um, read through the uh, read between the lines. Um, if you look, for example, at, uh, you know, the UK's Project Condine, right? Um, um, you're familiar with Project Condine, yeah? Mm -hmm. Unidentified aerial phenomena in the UK air defense region. So that was a report um, that was produced around 1999, 2000. Um, it was secret level. Um, it was conducted by a guy who was a former pilot. He was uh, had technical expertise, including radars. So the conclusion of that was um, that UAP do not have any significant defense intelligence value. However, the study has uncovered a number of technological issues that may have be, be of potential interest. Okay. Um, and then they say... Um, the aim of the investigation was to determine the potential value, if any, of UAP sighting reports to defense intelligence. So they also said, um, yeah, that UAP can exhibit aerodynamic characteristics well beyond those of any known aircraft or missile, either manned or unmanned. So, and then the Project Condine, it's a, it's a long, lengthy report. It goes on to talk about, you know, um, various different, uh, you know, technologies that could be developed from, you know, studying UAP. So clearly there was UK interest in it, whether there was a, a kind of like an ATIP um, type program that went on above the level of Defence Intelligence 55, who, um, who produced the, uh, the, the Project Condine report, I don't know. Um, but I would imagine now that the UK will be a lot more interested. Um, from Project Condine, they said as well, um, they were really looking at threats to... Um, air threats basically to the uk air defense region um, but it's quite interesting if you look at what they actually said so they said that um, they would consider uap to be a threat if um, these objects could successfully penetrate the defended airspace of the uk uh, with hostile intent in peace crisis or war so the key word there is being hostile intent 
They would also consider UAP to be a threat if they could damage uh, or produce potential damage or danger in the form of physical effects, electronic effects, or if there's a possibility of an air hazard, such as a collision um, with civilian or military air traffic. Um, they also talk about uh, the objects would be considered a threat if they were within UK airspace and they were found to be hostile if challenged and invulnerable to radar tracking and could outmaneuver our airborne or ground-based air defenses. And then the last category, uh, the last kind of um, indicator for whether UAP were uh, a threat or not uh, was if controlled objects could enter and leave the UK air defense region, having possibly obtained intelligence data, e.g. Im imagery, electronic intelligence, etc. So now relate that to uh, UAP incursions over, you know, sensitive, uh, you know, nu um, nuclear sites over, you know, military training areas and, you know, draw your own conclusions as to whether the Brits um, would be more interested now that more has come out from, you know, the United States in, in terms of, you know, what the US government has been saying about UAP and what, you know, former, um, you know, senior intelligence officials and, you know, even former, a former president have been saying about UAP. So I think, yeah, the, the UK is going to be a lot more interested than it lets on but it's very much going to follow the American example and they're not going to do anything without being in step with the Americans. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure we're talking about the same report here. It's the uh, DI-55 one. Yeah, the one that you reference in one that's of it. your papers. Yeah, the, yeah that, that particular report, uh, yeah, it, it mentions a, quote, a, a brief report into known or postulated exotic technologies unquote as as having taken place um although it doesn't sort of really give much away and it, it attempts really to sort of explain away uaps as almost like an atmospheric phenomenon i, I felt reading through that plasma or, or plasma type things yeah pl plasma type things um but like you said there's loads of other language in there as well which sort of hints that we might be able to we basically there's some weird plasma type thing but we don't really understand what it is and we might be able to get a lot of advancements in our own technology from studying it um but which is a bit of a weird conclusion in general but um the bit that that I was interested in that that might relate to some kind of UK ATIP thing was that brief report into known or postulated exotic technologies. Um, are you aware of anywhere where that that actual report, that brief report that's mentioned there, is is available, or is that hidden away somewhere? I, I am not aware of the existence of um, any such report. Um, and if I were, I wouldn't be disposed to talk about it, <laughs> uh, is, is the short answer. But I can of give course. you, I mean, if we, if we delve into Condine, if we, if we delve into what Defence Intelligence 55 actually said, um, remember there's a section where they're referencing uh, Marshal Sokolov, who was the Soviet Defence Minister in the 1980s, right? So he's talking about... Um, the Russians, right, in the, in the, in the Condon report, and they're saying, uh, Sokolov says, we had 40 cases, 40 Russian cases, where pilots encountered UFOs. Initially, they were commanded to chase, then shoot. When our pilots would engage, the UFO would speed up. Our aircraft would give chase, lose control, and crash. Okay? This happened three times, and twice the pilots died. After that, the pilots were told to observe and change course and get out. And it says, the pilots viewed UFOs as a definite threat, Sokolov says. 
And then he goes on. This is the Russian defense minister. The military were interested in UFOs, including the belief that if the secrets of the UFO could be um, basically understood, um, they would be able to win the competition against prospective enemies by incorporating the technology. Right. So the a Brit secret level report is saying that the Russians are interested in UAP uh, for the technology because they want to get ahead of effectively the US and the Brits and NATO. Um, and presumably also the Chinese. And the second point is that the Russians consider UAP to be a threat. Now, if the Soviet Air Force is your principal adversary, if the Soviet Union is your principal adversary, and the Soviet Air Force is saying that they view UAP as a threat and they're interested in the technology because they believe that it can get them you know, to somersault ahead uh, in terms of capabilities, um, as a British intelligence officer in DI-55, you're definitely going to take that um, seriously. So you have to read between the lines there. Can you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Um, and it, it, the thing is as well is that, that that report was a long, long time ago. So, I mean, it's what they're up to now as well is, is quite interesting to, to think about. Um, I'm, I'm sure if you are aware, you won't be able to tell me. Um, but do you, do you think there's the possibility of, of a current sort of like ATIP type initiative in the UK? I wouldn't rule it out. I mean, I don't know. Um, no, I'm not in the military anymore. Um, and um, but you would be incredibly irresponsible if you weren't taking it seriously. It just wouldn't be professional yeah, I mean, not to. I mean, these things exist. They indisputably exist. It's been said publicly now by the American government that these things exist. I mean, even if you go back to the Condine report, it says you know that UAP, are, you know that UAP are real, uh, you know, phenomena is indisputable. They exist. So the Brits were saying that back in you know two thousand. You'd have to take it seriously. So, so what what do you think the? I mean, it's I think it's fairly logical to assume that they are taking it seriously, and and they probably have been for quite some time behind closed doors. But why do you think it's so secretive in the UK compared to other places? Because like Americans, for example, seem to be like really open about this at the moment. What what do you think the difference is there? Well, I mean, they're open and they're not open. Um, and we could spend a whole podcast talking about, you know, the implications of the, the recent um, DOD announcement about setting up of that, uh, you know, office with the acronym that nobody can pronounce to study UAP, um, which seems to go, to, which seems to be an attempt to preempt the Gillibrand Amendment. And which actually, when I spoke to uh, Chris Mellon um, a couple of days ago, he said, yes, he goes, it's outrageous. It is an attempt to preempt the Gillibrand Amendment. Um, or as somebody else told me, an, uh, an attempt by the DOD to head Congress off at the pass. Um, sorry, I lost my train of thought there. What was the question? Yeah, um, I was just saying, um, what do you think the uh, the reason is that it's much more secretive in the UK compared to uh, how it is in America? I just think, I mean, it's traditionally been that way because, um, you know, the 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 brits have you know traditionally been much you know more secretive for example if you look at like the official secrets act um you know if you had an eric davis type character in in the uk he could never get away with with talking as much about the issue as you know elizondo and um, um as elizondo and uh, for example um Mellon and uh, eric davis have done in fact the author of the condine report he's kind of like shunned all um 
all, all types of uh, you know um, uh, you know efforts to to get him to talk about it. He's just like you know gone into the background, doesn't want to talk about it. Um, so the tra- traditionally, the U- the UK has been a lot more secretive about that. Um, I think uh, it, it's just a factor, the sort of the, the culture of secrecy in, in the UK, and the fact that you know America is. I mean, a lot of Americans will say no, but the fact that you know America is a more open society that way, um, in terms of you know what what is available publicly. Um, but the you know the official secrets act is, is yeah. really. Um, it's it's very it's it's um it's very all encompassing. I mean, you know, it's for life, and it's automatic jail if you talk about um you know anything that you may have uh, done or come into contact with or, or learnt as a result of your service. Yeah, I was going to ask you actually as well if you knew about the proposed amendments. Uh, Pretty Patel, I think, was uh, mentioning back in the summer about um, like stru- tightening up the uh, Official Secrets Act um, to the to the point where I think it was almost like um, if if a journalist is in possession of any uh, classified information. Um, that they can be actually prosecuted as well as the person who gave them the information. Um, I, I was trying to find out the other day, um, I was actually having a conversation with John Ramirez about it, um, and um, I was trying to find out whether or not that tightening up actually went ahead. Um, I don't suppose you happen to know. No, I don't, but um, it would make sense because then you'd be um, you know, trying to mitigate against you know reckless narcissists like Assange from uh, you know coming into control, say, Getting getting hold of uh, you know classified information and then uh, leaking it out onto the internet and causing you know grave damage to um, you know British interests or American interests. That yeah, would seem to be. I'll logical. have to keep looking. Yeah, you think that's a, a, a sort of like a fair 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 thing to do then with that? Well, I mean, I, I mean, a fair in terms of uh, logical, yeah, in terms of um, you know Snowden, Manning, Assange. Um, that would be logical for the UK to do that. I mean, they've seen what happened to um, the Americans as a result. I mean, look, I was actually on the ground in Iraq working with various American agencies in, was it 2010, when this actually kicked off. Um, and I was in the most ridiculous situation where I was a Brit and the American army would talk to me and share stuff with me, but the US State Department and the US State Department would uh, share stuff with me, but they wouldn't share stuff with each other. And I'm a Brit. And that's because of Assange. Right. Mm. Because, you know, they, they stopped trusting each other. The, the the U.S. State Department immediately cut off because, uh, you know, Manning had had access, uh, you know, a, a private Manning, um, uh, as she was then, had access to all these State Department cables. So the State Department immediately said, right, the army, you're cut off now from, uh, you know, anything um, classified that we have. You know, that's, that's two, two, two major branches of the American government now, not, uh, of the American intelligence community, not talking to each other. And that was, you know, the damage caused, part of the damage caused, well, that was a damage that was caused by Assange, quite aside from, um, you know, the threats to operations, the threats to sources, the threats to lives. You know, I was there and I saw it. So that to me would make, um, it makes sense for the Brits to want to, um, to head that off at the past. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting actually to get your perspective on it because, um, I mean, I was just thinking of it from the point of view of I better be careful what questions I ask people because if anybody tells me anything classified, I'm screwed. Um, but obviously, I hadn't really thought about that bigger picture as well as to why they're actually bringing that in. Um, as I say, I'm not sure if they have. I think it's still in sort of constant consultation at the moment, but um, I'll have to keep digging into that one. 
Um, so, yeah, moving on from that, is, is there any information that you have come across uh, regarding UK crash retrieval investigations or any exotic materials being held in the UK or overseas territories? Um, no, and if I had, I wouldn't be able to discuss it. Fair enough. And are there any other countries other than the United States that you may be aware of that do have in their possession materials are craft not of this world yeah i mean there's actually um paul stonehill um he's actually one of my favorite researchers he's uh speaks ukrainian and russian uh, brought up in the former soviet union i don't know if you're aware of his work he does a lot of stuff on phenomenology in um in the former soviet space and the far east um, and everything from UFOs to cryptids to underwater, you know, USOs. Um, if you look at his work, um, and also there seems to be, uh, you know, a fair body of evidence. If you look at um, Thread 3, which I mentioned in my first paper, you know, the Soviets and the Russians definitely had and have an interest in, um, in, in UAP. And, um, you know, there are a number of document, documented cases of um, crash retrievals in Russia, um, where, you know, craft has crashed or in one case, a craft was even brought down by surface to a missile, uh, Ryan Sprague on, um, somewhere in the skies, which is another podcast that I really like. Um, he recently, I think in the last week or last two weeks, um, did a podcast on, um, on crash retrievals behind the iron curtain. Um, that was in literally in the, the last week or two weeks. I listened to it the other day, and that's well worth listening to. And that talks about several cases of uh, of crash retrievals in in the in the former Soviet Union. Um, so I believe, yeah, the Russians uh, personally, I believe, yeah, they're in um, in possession of um, retrieved retrieved craft. Quite possibly China as well, although it's harder to get information you know out of there. Um, but you have to think in terms of um, you know just in terms of their land mass, their their the probability is probably higher that a craft is, is going to, um, you know, um, uh, you know, crash or be retrieved there, just in terms of the landmass, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely, and um, yeah, Brian Sprague and somewhere in the skies, fantastic podcast. I did actually listen to that uh, the other day, um, and uh, yeah, uh, somewhere in the skies was definitely one of the inspirations for me to actually start this podcast um, uh, a little while back. So uh, definitely recommend everyone go check that out. But I was kind of th- we 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 hear about sort of Russia and the states. Um, in particular, and some mentions of of, of China having ha- you know had crash retrievals or attempts to to reverse engineer um, UFO technology. Um, are there any other countries that perhaps you're aware of that you may have heard on the grapevine that, that are worth looking into in that area, perhaps even like a, a small country that perhaps you wouldn't expect? Uh, Brazil would be the obvious one um, because Brazil, again, has got a large land mass. It's got a fairly large military as well. Um, and also there's you know, plenty of document case, document well documented cases from Brazil um, of um, uh, UFOs and occupants. Uh, one that springs to mind is um, there've been a, a number of crash retrieval cases in Brazil, and there's also the famous kind of um, Calara's uh, Calara's kind of episode in 1977, uh, where um, you know locals in Calara's were in around Calara's were getting zapped by big box shaped UFOs. 
um, and there were some kind of entities there, uh, you know, interacting with with the locals in a negative way. People died, people got injured, and it was well documented by you know both Brazilian Air Force intelligence, by the Brazilian Navy, and also by the National Intelligence Service. So, and also Brazil as well. Brazil's got its own arms industry. I mean, Brazil, uh, you know, produces aircraft as well. Um, so, um, I would imagine that. Uh, they seem to have had a lot of cooperation with the United States over the years, and they've always been, you know, an American ally. But I would imagine that, you know, the Brazilian military would be interested in in UAP technology as well. I mean, who wouldn't? Um, India would probably be another obvious one. Japan, um, you know, any any technologically advanced country with an with a technologically advanced military. Hmm. Yeah, very interesting. And. Um, do you think that there could be any kind of going back to the UK for a second now? Do you think there could be any kind of Skinwalker Ranch type locations in the UK or again overseas territories that are being investigated by the UK, perhaps even? Um, the truth is, Frank, I just don't know on that score. So you know, I, I don't want to speculate. Um, but uh, given that. Um, there are believed to be, you know, like multiple, you, you know, locations in the USA. It would be kind of be maybe surprising if there weren't other locations around the world. I just, you know, don't know where they're located, so I, I, I couldn't speculate on that. Fair enough, fair enough, man. Well, look, I think that's about all we've we've got time for uh, for now. So um, you've been super generous with your time. Thanks very much for uh, for for coming on. And uh, just to to finish up with, um, I don't know if you want to go into any any future plans that you have personally to look into the topic further, or any any future papers that you're planning on. Yeah, I've got a I've got a future uh, paper in me, um, but at the moment I'm really kind of uh, collecting and collating, um, you know, information. I've been having absolutely phenomenal conversations with some of my sources. Um, I'm reading a lot and I'm really just kind of like trying to drink it all in, um, having a bit of like a strategic pause, as it were, um, trying to take it all in um, before sort of I take the next step. Um, but when I do, it's going to be something kind of like original, like my first two papers, um, because I don't like repeating kind of work that other people have done. I like building on the work that other people have done, but I don't like, you know, kind of repeating it. Um, but uh, yeah, in the future, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'm staying engaged in the topic, that's for sure. But at the moment, I just really want to take in everything that I've been learning because, you know, probably like you, I, you know, I came into this only recently and it's been a, a phenomenal kind of like roller coaster journey. And the, the more I go down the rabbit hole, you know, the, the more kind of tunnels appear ahead of me. And it's it's really... Uh, difficult just trying to keep on on top of everything there's so many subtopics that are, are fascinating and need attention um you've really got to kind of uh, try and uh, steer yourself in, in a certain direction because you can't possibly take it all in all, all at once so i just uh, you know I'm, I'm doing a bit of a strategic pause at the moment fair enough man and I'll, I'll definitely be keeping an eye out for any any future work that you do as i say um i highly recommend everybody go and read your, your first two papers and uh, keep an eye out for your future work so thanks very much again and uh, hopefully speak to you again at some point hey thank you very much frank it's been a pleasure being on really 
Okay, so I hope you enjoyed that, folks. It was really interesting to dig into a lot of topics that people have been discussing and, and people have been asking Frank a lot of questions uh, you know, regarding some of these topics. So I hope we managed to get through some bits and pieces there that you found interesting. Um, so you can find uh, Frank Milburn on uh, Twitter. It's at Frank Milburn, but it's uh, Frank with a C. So that's F-R-A-N-C. M-I-L-B-U-R-N and that's on, on Twitter and uh, Frank's always posting like links to interesting articles and uh, different bits and pieces um, so definitely worth uh, going on there and giving him a follow and uh, you can find me on Twitter at UFO Thinker as always if you've got any thoughts you want to share after listening to today's episode that would be great to hear from you so at UFO Thinker on Twitter and UFO Thinker at Hotmail.com uh, and also as always you can support the podcast on Patreon as you heard in the intro earlier but if you're listening to this bit of the show you're probably a hardcore listener of the podcast especially since this has been a particularly long episode so if you do get a lot out of the podcast and you want to support you can get things like early access and loads of other benefits as well and the tiers on patreon start from a couple of pounds a month a couple of dollars a month if you're in the states and which a lot of my listeners actually are i think over 80 percent of the listeners of this podcast are in the states so yeah a couple of dollars a month and you can support the the podcast there on on patreon and that's uh, you can find the link to that in the episode description or just search on patreon ufo thinker and it's very much appreciated just allows me to keep getting the podcast better and better as we go along so thanks very much for listening and till next time guys take it easy stay curious and i'll catch you in the next episode UFO Podcast.